the title of my message is Called from the Cave, Called from the Cave. And we're going to talk today about what we do when we are in a situation or a season that threatens to just swallow us up. A cave is anything that can just swallow you up. You know, a lot of folks uh, in this area are in a financial cave. You know, the economy's a bit rocky. There's been some major layoffs. They have polished up their resume. Their resume is gleaming, but that job market is just so soft. And now they're really fighting for, you know, when is that job going to come through? And right now that thing is swallowing them up. Some folks are, are in a physical cave. They're fighting a physical ailment and it's just distracting them. You know, they're, they're just consumed by this, this illness or this fight that they have with their physical body. Some people, their marriage is on some shaky ground. And they don't know how things are going to turn out. And that marriage season, that hard season that they're in is their cave. Some folks are in grief. And that grief is overwhelming them and about to swallow them up. And that's their cave. Everyone, I was going to, I'm going to guess that 8 out of 10 people in this room this morning, you're probably walking through something. Because everybody's got it different. Nobody's got it better. Everybody's got something. And so we're going to take a look at a, a man named Elijah's life, and we're going to read a scene from his life and talk about how he ended up in his cave and how God brought him through and brought him out of that cave. So if you've got your Bible this morning, 1 Kings 19, I'm going to read out of the NIV, and it says in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I underline that part in my Bible. He stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Have you ever been in a season where it's not only a hard season, but you feel like you're the only one? The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. I underlined that part too. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nemesh, king of Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shapeth, from Abel, Mohola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve for myself 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That means they hadn't pledged allegiance to Baal. They were still true to the living God, 7,000. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. So we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. Elijah is one of the coolest, baddest, most anointed prophets to ever walk on the planet Earth. I mean, this guy's career was just incredible. He lived in a time where Israel had some very evil leaders, and he was constantly confronting that culture. And if you don't know who Elijah is, you've probably heard of a, a chick named Jezebel. Everybody heard the name Jezebel? It's never, nobody ever names their kid Jezebel. 
You know what I mean? It's going, no, no, it's, no, it's not going to be in the, you know, top 10 most popular names of 2016. It just has a bad connotation. And it's because this woman was super, super wicked, and she drove the people of God to go serve pagan gods. And it's Elijah on one side fighting for the heart of the people, and Jezebel and her husband Ahab trying to lead the people into wickedness. So Elijah is just like incredible. I mean, this guy was anointed beyond belief, just a powerful man of God. Like it would not rain in Israel unless Elijah prayed for it to rain. I mean, there's praying for your food when you sit down to eat lunch. And then there's praying for rain and it actually starts raining outside. I mean, we're talking like two different levels, right? I've got your lunch covered, but don't call me if you need it to rain, right? I'm just not there. That's not where I'm at. But Elijah was there. And Elijah gets to this place where he is just fed up with the evil. He's fed up with Jezebel and her prophets. And he tells the whole nation, all right, everybody, we're going to meet on top of Mount Carmel. Just meet me there. And he tells the prophets of Baal, look, you build an altar to Baal, and I'm going to build an altar to the living God, and you try to call down fire from Baal, and I'm going to try to call down fire from the living God. And the person who calls down fire, that's the God we're going to serve. And the people said, that sounds good to me. And so the prophets of Baal start doing their chants and their dances and their incantations and they're cutting themselves. And Elijah's just sitting back going, well, maybe Baal's out of town. Maybe Baal forgot to fall back and he's just late. By the way, you guys all look great. I can tell you got an hour's extra sleep. Except those of you who have children because we all know that doesn't matter. Kids don't read clocks, they read the sun. Sun's up, kids up, right? That's the way it goes. But the prophets are doing everything they can to call down this fire, and Elijah's taunting them a bit. And finally, it's Elijah's turn. And he prays, and he calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice. And the people of God, the nation of Israel, are just like, the God, he is Lord. And Elijah says, that's right, and he puts to death all the prophets of Baal. Huge, public, miracle, just amazing demonstration of God's power. I would put it up there next to parting the Red Sea, right? And so Elijah, when he gets off that mountaintop, it starts to rain, and the prophets of Baal have been killed, and he gets this note, he gets this message from Jezebel. And Jezebel says, you know what? You killed all my prophets, and I'm coming after you, and I'm going to have you. And Elijah just takes off. And he ends up in this cave, and he ends up in this place where he is overwhelmed, and he is not sure what God is going to do. He feels like his ministry's over. You know, a lot of times when you and I find ourselves in caves, it comes out of nowhere. It's like we could be having the best day. We could be feeling like we're calling down fire from heaven or making it rain, you know, in our lives. And then we get this message, and it puts that fear in our hearts, and we end up running to a cave. When I was a kid, I um, was next-door neighbors with a girl named Larissa Calvert, and we were like five or six years old, and Larissa and I owned that cul-de-sac. I mean, we just train and wheeled our way all over Burr Oak Lane. We own that joint. 
And we didn't live in a fancy neighborhood like the Woodlands, right? You know, we didn't have pools on every corner. Nobody in our neighborhood had a pool in their backyard. But Larissa's grandparents had a pool. And Larissa and I, because we were so tight, I was cool by proxy. And I got to go swim in Larissa's grandparents' pool, and I was hot stuff, let me tell you. But it was the 80s. We didn't wear bike helmets, we didn't wear seat belts, and we didn't wear water wings. Anybody? Well, you all survived the 80s, praise God. We all made it. But y'all remember that. You know, we, we certainly didn't have any of those safety things, but we had some of the best music, didn't we? I'm telling you. So I was swimming in Larissa Calvert's pool with no water wings, and I had to stay in the shallow, because I'm about five but my confidence would grow and I'd get a little bit further from that edge. And have you ever been on your tiptoes in a pool and you know where the shallow meets the deep? It's not like a stair step. It's like that little slope, that little slide. Have you ever felt the edge of it with your feet? And I was splashing and I was living large and I owned that place until I had one splash too many. And I went from the best day of my life to completely underwater. I can remember, because when you're five and your life flashes before your eyes, there's not a lot to play, you know? It's like my kindergarten teacher, and that's it. (laughs) Okay. The next thing I remember, Larissa's grandfather is diving in the pool, and I don't even remember this. I just remember sitting on one of those plastic lawn chairs next to him, and he is just like shaking because he's just had to pull a five-year-old out of his pool. And I feel like for a lot of us, when we find ourselves in that cave, it's usually when we come out of a huge victory. It's usually when we're not even anticipating it. That cave just overnight swallows us up and we're like, what? What happened here? And so I want to talk about the path that leads us to the cave and the path that leads us out of the cave. And so the first thing, if you're following along on the app, your first note, what leads us to a cave? The first thing is fear. Elijah has this huge victory, this huge monumental victory. And then he gets a note from this woman. And his first reaction in verse 3, if you go home and you read the whole chapter, it's worth the read. Read 18 and 19 when you get home. But in verse 3 it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Elijah's first reaction to this message from Jezebel is absolute fear, and it sets his feet aflight. You know, fear finds you when you are tired and spent. I find it very interesting that Jezebel, who is the queen of this country, did not approach Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. She waited until after the rain had started and after he'd called down fire, and then she found an opportune time to send him a message. A lot of times for many of us, the enemy waits for that opportune time to plant that seed, to plant that message in your heart, to make you question who God is and, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? And we just take off before we even think of anything else. We just take off. You know, Monday mornings are, are usually crazy. I mean, we have amazing, anointed, powerful services. And then sure enough, Monday morning, I pretty much anticipate at some point in the day, the receptionist is going to say, Sarah, hell is on line one. They're waiting for you. <laughs> and I always say the same thing. Tell them I'm at lunch, <laughs> you know. I just, that's the way it goes. Or it's on a Thursday night when you're balancing your checkbook. You know, you've been 
reading the word and you've been praying and you're seeing God move and then you forget to carry the one and you're like, what? Bank error and it's Sarah, you know? It's on a Thursday night when you're balancing your checkbook. It's on a Saturday morning when you have to confront your teenager and say, when did you get home last night? Why were you not home by curfew? Those are the moments God waits or the enemy waits until we're spent emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And then that's when he decides to come at you with fear. Fear is fuel to the enemy. In the same way a fire needs oxygen to survive, the enemy has to have fear in your life in order for his to gain a foothold. You know, when you're fearful or anxious, you need to remember that you're projecting yourself in a future where God is not present. Because God has promised to faithfully lead you, to faithfully protect you, and to faithfully guide you. And so when you find yourself having an imagination or a a scenario where you're not provided for, it means you're imagining a future where God is not present. Because we know that perfect love casts out all fear and God is love. So if you're seeing a situation where you're fearful, then there's an absence of love in that situation and it means God is not present. And God does not have that for you. So you have to take captive that thought. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I bring into captivity every thought into obedience with Christ. It's, I'm usually more vulnerable after a major victory than when I'm fighting for it. Because after I've won this fight, I like to kick it on autopilot. Like, whew, that's over. We're just going to cruise control it for a minute, fellas. And that's when the enemy's like, and that's where I have to be on my guard to take captive every thought, every imagination, every scenario, because it just needs that moment. If a man of God who called down fire from heaven ran from a note, then I am probably likely to run from far less. And we have to just see that. And know that and press through that and not answer that fear. So fear will drive us into a cave. And fear is another one that if you don't have a companion on your journey, fear is always willing to go. Fear is like, hey, I'll split gas money with you. Hey, I'm up for it. I've never been there. I'd love to go. So when you find yourself alone, fear is always willing to be your companion. And that leads me to my second point, what drives us into caves It's not only fear, but isolation. It says in that same verse that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And it says he left his servant behind. God had put a man in Elijah's life whose calling was to encourage him, who, to serve him, to be that, that shoulder that he could lean on. And Elijah purposely cut it off and went his own way, went alone was isolated. You know, you and I were built for relationships. If Elijah, who could actually pray for people and they'd come back to life, he could actually like create miracles with, with bread and oil. If he could not walk this life alone, I'll go one step further. The Son of God came to the earth And he was not able to walk alone, but had 12 disciples. And of those 12 disciples, three close friends. If Elijah and Jesus Christ could not walk this journey alone, what makes us think we can? (laughs) 
You know, the enemy's first lie to you starts with fear. You're not going to be taken care of. And his second lie to you is you can do it by yourself. You can do it by yourself. You're fine. You're fine. And if you bite either one of those, you're going to end up in a cave. You're going to end up in a dark place that, that overwhelms your perspective and your senses. You know, Hebrews 10.24, I love the way the Amplified Bible puts this. I want to read it to you. Hebrews 10.24, it says, Let us consider and give attentive, continuous care to watching over one another, studying how we may stir up to love and helpful deeds and noble activities, not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together as some are in the habit of doing, but admonishing one another as all the more faithfully as we see the day approaching. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have to give attentive, continuous care to watching over one another. Continuous, attentive care to watching over one another. It's not just another thing that we do as believers. It's the one thing we're supposed to do as believers. Careful, attentive, continuous care doesn't mean that I just kind of scroll through your Facebook posts. <laughs> I do that too. I'm a little bit of a Facebook stalker. But it also means that I look for you on a Sunday morning. And I just don't hear you say, fine. I look to see what your eyes are really saying. Or I call you for no good reason other than to say hi. Or I invite you to a life group because I know that your story could encourage other people. And I know you've got to share that. That's what careful, attentive, continuous care looks like. When man was in the Garden of Eden, this was before the fall of man. This was before sin. He's created this perfect paradise. He's created man, and he has perfect fellowship with man. This is before sin. God declared it is not good for man to be alone. And he had perfect communication with man and with man with God in a sinless state. You were wired up for relationships. It's how you were created. And God has given us a responsibility for each other, a responsibility to care for each other. And the writer in Hebrews says, even more so as we see the day approaching. That means the more evil it gets out there, the more attention and the more care and the more we have to stir up noble love in each other to care for each other. Man, the isolation will drive you to a cave. You know, one thing that's really, really interesting to me is that it turns out Elijah's like, I'm all by myself. And I'm like, well, you left your servant back there, but enough. It's like, I'm all by myself. I have no one else to care for me. And God speaks back to him and he says, Elijah, I have 7,000 just like you who love me, who serve me, who are not worshiping Baal. Now, this is really, really interesting to me. Elijah strikes me as a pretty sharp guy, pretty discerning. Like, you don't just call down fire from heaven because you have a pretty face. Like, this guy's got it up here. And if there were 7,000 in Israel who loved God, who were serving God, how did Elijah not know? And I want to submit to you the reason Elijah never knew it's because, sure, they hadn't bowed their knee, but they certainly hadn't opened their mouth. They hadn't encouraged. They hadn't publicly said, 
this is the hope we have, serve the living God. I mean, Elijah put the whole country on a mountain, put the bad guys on one side, put the good guys on the other, and there was no 7,000 on this side. It was just Elijah. You and I have to live life out loud. We have to give a reason for the hope that we have. God is crossing our paths every day with people, divine appointments, and they are holding on with just a thread. They're just like Elijah. They love God sometimes. Sometimes they don't know God, but regardless, they're just holding out for just that little bit of hope. And when you share the reason for the hope that you have, they get a little bit stronger and you keep them out of that cave. You keep them out of that cave. I would say, like I said before, eight out of 10 of us are probably walking through something right now. I was last week in a very hard place. And I know that's shocking because when you're on staff at a church, bad things don't happen to you, right? <laughs> right. But, and, it, and it's not anything necessarily super bad. Church is amazing. Church is growing. God is moving. But that usually indicates that hell's a little upset about that. And so I just faced some personal things. And I, I met a girlfriend for coffee. And she's like, how are you doing? And I said, you know what? I'm kind of ready for 2016 to be over. <laughs> it's been a great year. God has moved. But it's been a hard year. You know, I've had friends who have had to walk through some hard things, and I've fought that with them. I've had friends whose children were so sick that they had to go downtown as a parent, can you imagine? Like there's, you take your baby to Memorial Hermann and Memorial Hermann says, your baby's so sick, we need to go downtown. That's a whole nother level for a parent. I've had friends whose marriages have ended, friends who've buried parents, friends who've buried siblings. And I said, it's, I'm kind of ready for 2016 to be over. And she said, yeah, I can see that. I can see that in your eyes. And she put me in a boat. And for a week, she called and she checked on me, and she kept pulling me along. Sometimes I feel like I ride in the boat, and sometimes I'm called to pull the boat. Sometimes it's my turn to say, hey, hop in here. You're going to get to church. Come on. You're going to get to church. We're going to get you in a life group. Come on. We're going to get you to serve. We're going to get you on a great team. Come on. You got to come to church on Sunday. You got to, let me, you got to read this book. You got to, and sometimes I pull and then sometimes it's my turn to hop in there. It's sort of like when you're at Kima or Galveston and you see those huge yachts, right? And they've got that little boat behind them. The, the little boat could be so overwhelmed so quickly by that mass of water. If it weren't tethered to something bigger than itself, it would be flailing. And you and I are sometimes called to just tether ourselves to someone and say, come on, come on, I'm not going to let you fall. You're not going to be in this cave by yourself. You're not alone. Fear is not going to tell you where to go or how to do it. But come on, I've got you. I've got you. We're going to get to the one who can make it right. And sometimes I ride in the boat and sometimes I pull the boat. But no matter what, I'm never alone. And that's what you and I are called to. That's what you and I are called to. So Galatians 6.2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to do the work of Christ? Bear somebody's burdens. So Elijah shows us two key indicators for how we know we're headed to a cave so we can cut it off at the pass. And he also shows us how the Lord brings us out of caves. And the first one is how do we get out of a cave? And it's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When you are at the end of yourself, then Jesus. Jesus. 
You know, Elijah runs into the desert with nothing, no food, no water, no provision, no anything. And an angel of the Lord, capital L, comes and brings him food and brings him water and tells him the journey's too great for you. I want to submit to you that that angel of the Lord was actually Jesus Christ himself. And when you and I find ourselves and we can't take another step forward, then Jesus. Jesus says, the journey is too great for you. That is why I am here. Jesus says, you know what? I am the bread of life and I am the well that doesn't run dry. And I'm, I'm going to give you the nourishment you need for this season that I've called you to. You will have grace for the season that you are in. Sometimes I get ahead of God. I go into the what ifs and I don't know. And I have to just rest in the fact that I have the mercy and the grace that I need for that morning, for that day. And then I'll get up the next day and I'll have the mercy and the grace that I need for that day and those circumstances. But I can't use today's grace for tomorrow's challenges. I got to trust him every morning for the portion that I need. And Jesus shows up and he says, Elijah... The journey's too great for you. And he sustains him and he nourishes him physically and spiritually so that Elijah is able to get before the living God. You know, Elijah and God had pretty good communication. I don't think you do the kind of miracles that Elijah was doing without being pretty close to God. But there comes this place where God has to whisper things into your spirit that he can't yell from a mountaintop when fire's falling. And Jesus, the, son, the angel of the Lord, tells Elijah, go to Mount Horeb, go meet with the living God. And it's in that place that Elijah receives what he's supposed to do next. Elijah had 14 major miracles in his ministry. And at this place where he's willing to give up, where he's throwing in the towel, where he's like, he literally prayed, God, please kill me. That's how spiritually depressed Elijah is. At that point, he thinks his ministry's over, but in reality, it's just his halftime. God has so much more for him. And when you want to get out of that cave, the remedy God brought to Elijah was give yourself away. Give yourself away. He tells him, and what we read in our text this morning is, I want you to go anoint three people, two kings and this farmer named Elijah. That was the first step. That was the path out of the cave Elijah found himself in. I want you to go anoint three people. When you are willing to give yourself away, when you are willing to be that tug, that line, that anchor point, you will find that your life, so all of a sudden, the more you give, the more you receive. The more you give, the more you receive. And where you thought you have this empty place, this hollow place, God, in the way his economy works, he has filled you and he has filled you and he's filled you because he's found this conduit for his grace, his conduit for his mercy so that you can bless others. So Elijah's first step out is he goes and he looks for three people to go anoint. You know, what I think is interesting is when he comes up on Elisha, the guy's driving a team of oxen. It's like the Ponderosa. You know, he's a whipping in an A and go, guys. And it says that Elisha was a righteous man who loved God. But Elisha would have stayed a righteous man who loved God had Elijah, even in his hurt, I don't know at what point the tide turned for Elijah. 
I don't know if it was when God spoke to him. I don't know if it was the first step he took out of the cave. I don't know if it was halfway to Elisha. I don't know if it was when he put his cloak around him. But we know the tide turned because he went on to do seven more miracles. And the guy never died. He went up in a chariot of fire. That's how amazing he is. So we know the tide turned for him. I can't tell you when. But he gets, he meets up with Elisha. And he goes, here, I'm responsible for you. And he puts Elisha in his boat, and he's like, yeah, I know you're a great rancher, you're a great farmer, but my healing, what God is calling me out of the cave for, is about, about to become your ministry. Because he took me through 14 miracles, but now he's anointed you for some other work. And because Elijah was willing to anoint Elisha, Elisha ends up doing twice as many miracles as Elijah. We thought Elijah was cool. Elisha takes it to a whole nother level. When you and I feel like we need to just throw in the towel and give up, in actuality, God's like, you know what? I've got somebody you need to anoint because the kingdom of God is going to go even further because they're going to stand on your shoulders. They're going to stand on what you've done, and now I'm going to build on this work, and I'm going to build on this work, and I'm going to build on this work. That's the way the gospel has always gone, line upon line and precept upon precept, where we're obedient to our calling, and we anoint who we're supposed to anoint, and then God takes it a step further, and then they anoint who they're supposed to anoint, and God takes it a step further, and we don't end up dwelling in caves all by ourselves, but we end up fulfilling our whole life's calling. Elijah was willing to go anoint three people. And it not only changed his life, it changed those men's lives. I want to ask you today, who are you supposed to anoint? You're in a hard season. You're in a cave. I'm not sure where you're finding yourself. But I want to ask you, who is God asking you to anoint? Can you trust God for one person? Can you trust God for two people? Maybe that person is a grown child. Oh yeah, I know you're 21 and you know everything, but come on, get in this boat. You're going to church. Or maybe that person is someone you go to car line with. Yep, yep, we're still in the same car line. Get in this boat. I love you too much to let you go to hell. Or maybe that person is someone that you're like, man, you would be amazing in my life group. Come every other Tuesday at 930. I don't know who you're supposed to anoint but I know you're supposed to anoint someone. That's our calling. That's what Elijah was called to do. That's what we're called to do. Let's stand together.